Uh, we, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, but I, I really sense that, that we needed to take a break from that today. We'll come back to that and uh, talk about something that I think is very important for us as a church. And uh, so today you might want to file this under just the, you know, that file under just stuff you just got to know. So uh, that's where that goes today. And I'm probably going to say some things that some are going to find somewhat offensive. And I, I don't mean to do that, but my hope is to share in a way that brings light, but not friction. But um, it's also in a time like this when we, we share a message like this. I'm reminded once again that we're a church. We're not a marketing company. And so what, there are sometimes we need to talk about things that, that aren't always um, uh, something. So, so, but uh, that's one of those days today. Now, as I begin this today, um, I want to, if you've been around any length of time here at Calvary, you know that, that we've talked about this, what the Bible talks about. The Bible will call a certain time period, the last days or the end times. And uh, th- throughout the, the Bible, it talks about that. And I'm reminded of how Jesus in Matthew 24, the disciples come to Jesus. You don't need to, to, to open it, but the disciples come to Jesus and, and um, he said some things, so they ask three questions. And the questions are, when will these things take place? What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The sign of your coming and the end of the age. And so Jesus takes the entire chapter 24 to give an end times teaching. And there's a theme in that and in all end times verses. And I want to just share a little bit. But Jesus begins his teaching on the end times there in Matthew 24. You can put it on, this, on the screen. He begins it by saying, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. His concern, as he gives that end times teaching, is that those who follow him would find themselves in a place where they are being deceived. Well, it's just a few verses later where Jesus says, same chapter, and he says, many false prophets will appear and deceive many. And and, uh, the only way that they can deceive many is if they have a platform large enough that when they speak, uh, a number of people actually hear them. He says, and again, he's speaking of the the last days. And then another verse there in that same chapter, he says, false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. And so again, what you see is false prophets appearing and uh, ultimately deceiving. And Jesus's concern is even that could be even those who are followers of his. Later on in the New Testament, as it progresses, Paul would write to Timothy and Paul would talk about the last times and um, notice what he says. Paul uh, writing to Timothy and he says, but the spirit explicitly says, uh, no, when he says the spirit explicitly says that that's his way of saying, this is just how it's going to be. It's going to be inescapable. This is just how it's going to be. The spirit explicitly says that in later times, some would say last time, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Have you noticed the, the word deceiving, deceit all through, all through that? Now here, as he's writing, he's writing to believers, and it's not that they become unbelievers, but they're listening to a a teaching, something that is not coming from the Lord, it's coming from what he would call a deceitful spirit, and literally the doctrine or teaching, he would say, from from demons. Well, one last verse, Uh, again, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, here's how it's going to go down. He says, but evil men 
and imposters will proceed. And I want you to notice it says from bad to worse. It never says, for, you know, they get better and better. It just goes, it kind of goes in a certain direction from bad to worse. And here's what they'll be doing. Deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving and being deceived. And uh, sadly, nowhere in your Bible does it say that it gets better and better and better. But as I, I went through all of the, the uh, verses on the end times, the one theme that comes about constantly is deception, deceit, deceiving. And uh, we had so many verses we were going to put on the screen today, but just in the interest of time, we had to cut those. And then last night, we had to cut even more just so that we could get, get done today. But my point is that the Bible speaks about, when it speaks about the end times, there's always this theme about deception, deception. It's in, it's in every verse. Did you find that interesting, by the way? Yes. Good, good, good. So um, that's the backdrop uh, of what we're going to talk about today when we talk about deception, especially in that time period known as the, the last days. If you're like me, I, I grew up in the church, and I remember when I was five years old, I was at Northwest Baptist Church there in North Miami. North Miami, Florida, and they gave the invitation. I stood up, I walked down, I gave my life to the Lord. But it wasn't until I was 13 years old that somebody talked to me about the importance of being in God's word on a daily basis. And so through my teens and college time, I, um, I walked with the Lord, and then there were times where I didn't walk with the Lord so much, and, and you, know, you know how that, that goes. But I always believed, I always believed. And it wasn't um, until... I went to college and I was confronted with things that I'd I'd never even considered before. One of the the things that um, that I encountered in college was the whole concept that's called pluralism. Now, pluralism by definition is a theory that there are more than one or more than two kinds of ultimate reality. And so I would have professors that would say that, you know, Christianity is a truth for us, uh, Buddhism is another truth for some other people, Islam is a truth for other people, and it's really all pointing to the same one God, but those religions are just manifestations, different manifestations of the same God, and that God has revealed himself in many ways. I always struggled with the concept that each religion is a manifestation of the same God. Two weeks ago, as we were going through 1 Corinthians, I talked about how Paul uses the illustration of how when the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt and how they made an idol, they made a cow. I remember that, uh, that, uh, that illustration and, um, and, um, and how people were choosing the characteristics that they wanted in their God and that represented their God. And if you weren't here, you, you, you want to get that teaching. But I said something. I said, you know, one of the things that you're going to find is those who look at trends in our country, one of the things that they're coming out and they're saying is that this year specifically, there's going to be a real push from religious leaders, uh, from political leaders, and from the media to tell us that the God of Islam and the God of the Bible are, in fact, one and the the same God. And uh, when I said that, what was so shocking to me was how many people within our congregation said, well, yeah, aren't, aren't, isn't, isn't it really the, the, the same God? And so I felt that, that it would be good for us as a congregation to at least take one, one teaching and just talk this through and uh, then maybe wind up where a little bit about my journey, how I became, how I've uh, wound up as a believer. So um, it's in times like this, I pull out my handy dandy copy of the Koran and um, you can... 
the Quran is, is in some ways, uh, when it's translated, it's translated like the Bible, like I read out of the New American Standard. Some of you have the NIV or the New King James or the King James Version. So there's a number of different translations, but essentially they say the same thing. What I'm going to share with you today comes from my copy, but you can go online. This is online. They've got Korans online. You can go to any bookstore and find it, and you can find out if what I'm saying is, is, is actually true. But is it the same God? Well, I want you to notice there on your outline, I put a couple of verses from my, my copy. Now, the, Saram, uh, the, the Quran, when it, when it was written, uh, it was written in what's called surahs, which are like long chapters, and they tend to have a certain topic that they talk about. But there in, in Surah 551, notice it says, and I'm going to want you to underline a couple of things as we travel through. It says, O oh, you who believe, underline, do not take the Jews and the Christians for friends. Does everybody see that? Okay, and you can go online, you can find this. Uh, they are friends with each other, and whoever amongst you takes them for a friend, then surely he is one of them. Surely Allah does not guide the unjust people. And so if you can't take them as friends, what do you do with them? Well, in that same surahs, it kind of goes back and forth. It says, the punishment of those who wage war against Allah and his apostle and strive to make mischief in the land is only this, that they should be murdered or crucified or have their hands and feet should be cut off on opposite sides or they should be imprisoned. And this shall be a disgrace for them in this world and in the hereafter, and they shall have a grievous chastisement. So it's not that, that the Quran explicitly says you don't be friends, but here's how you're to deal with Christians and Jews and those who don't em- embrace Islam. Now you say, well, why? We, we, don't really, we don't really see that happening everywhere. Well, here's why. Only 30% of people who profess to be Muslims actually read the Quran. Uh, it's about the same for those who profess to be Christians. Aren't you glad that only 30% of those who profess to be Muslims actually read the Quran, and it's not a much higher number? Well, um, so, so this is very, very different. Um, if that's true, cut off their hands, feet, don't take Jews and Muslims, then, then Jesus who would say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is very, very different. Uh, going on, as you look at the situation around the world and in the Middle East, you say, what in the world is happening? Well, I want you to notice from the 47th surah, it says there on your outline, when you encounter the infidels, if you're not a Muslim here today, you are an infidel, that, that from, from their perspective. When you encounter the infidels, underline this, strike off their heads, make sure you underline that, till you have made a great slaughter among them, and of the rest, make fast the fetters. Make fast the fetters. You want to underline that. So when it says to strike off their heads, that means to behead, which is why when you're on the news or you watch the news and you see that ISIS goes into an area, one of the first things that they do is there is this mass slaughter by beheading. When you say, why are you doing this? They don't consider themselves to be radical Muslims. They just say, I'm just doing what the book says. As though if, if I were to turn the cheek, love my enemies, pray for those who persecute me, you would not call me a radical Christian. You'd say, you're just doing what the book says. It's just very, very straightforward. So far, so good? Yes. Now, interesting, when it says strike off their heads, there is, in the Bible, there is this time period called the tribulation. It's a seven-year period, and it, what happens before that is the church is removed in an event that we would call the rapture. That's a story for another day. But that, that seven-year time period is outlined through the book of Revelation. At the end of that time period, and, and there's a certain religion that comes up just prior to the church's removal, and that religion is very, very prominent during the time period called the tribulation. 
And so at the end of the tribulation period, John, as he's looking and he's describing what he sees as he writes the book of Revelation, notice what he says there on your outline in Revelation chapter 20. He says, and I saw the souls of those who had been, what's that word? Because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. I have a very sneaky suspicion as to what that religion will be that will be very prominent during the time period of the tribulation when the church is removed as people become believers, but ultimately it costs them their head. So uh, then you also notice in that Surah 47, he says, when you encounter the infidels, strike off their heads till you've made a great slaughter among them and of the rest, make fast the fetters. When it says make fast the fetters, that means to put them in chains. That would be our way of saying make them your slaves, which is why when you look at what's going on in um, Iraq and Syria, that the men are typically beheaded, and you can. This is not something that's that's even hidden, but you can you can actually watch the actual slave auctions as they auction off off the women, and uh, it's just and that's why they do that. They said that's just what the book says, and so that's what we do. Prior to what we see in in Iraq and Syria. It was back in, in the Sudan as Christian organizations would leak out videos that they hid showing the open slave markets as the, the Christian women would be captured, the animistic women would be captured, brought down to the Muslim territory, and sold in open slave markets. Right now, in Africa, there are over 20 million slaves uh, who are enslaved to, to, uh, to Muslims. And so and this is you know, open... open uh, selling in slave markets, and, and you don't have to dig very far to find that. That's just what it, and they're just doing what the book says. So this is very different than when we study the words of Jesus who says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Years ago, when we first started the church, and as a, as a student of comparative religion, I, I uh, saw an advertisement that said, if you want to know about Muslims, then, then let Muslims tell you about Muslims. And so they say, if you sent away for this, this uh, for information, we'd send you a free book. So I sent away, I got a free book. So here in this free book, this is, book is called What Everyone Should Know About Islam and Muslims. It's by Suzanne Hanif, and it's printed by Kazi Publications, and this is to help people become Muslims. Very interesting, as it, re- as it begins to talk about who Jesus is, she says in her book, again, convincing people to become Muslim, she says, then what about Christianity's claim that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, to answer this question, we must deal with two fundamental issues. One, could the exalted creator and Lord of the universe, in fact, have a son? And two, is it possible that Jesus could have claimed and actually did claim to be God's son? She goes on to say, the Quran states emphatically in passage after passage that Jesus is not God's son. He never claimed to be God's son or of divine nature, but rather charged his followers to worship God alone and that the notion of the Most High God having a son is so totally degrading and far removed from the exaltedness and transcendence of God's nature that it actually constitutes an awesome piece of blasphemy. So to say that God has a son in Islam is, is to uh, creates an awesome piece of blasphemy. So Islam teaches that Jesus is not God's son, Uh, We would say God in the flesh. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. He never claimed to be God's son. And uh, I'm going to say a verse and you guys guys finish it. It comes from John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking. And he says something like this. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten so uh, you can continue it if you want to, but, but we, all, we all get the idea, right? So the Bible teaches time and time, he would say, uh, if the Son sets you free, then you are truly free indeed. So, so throughout the New Testament, we have the testimony that Jesus claimed to be God's Son, and he taught that he was God's Son, and he would say, I and my Father are one that he claimed to be divine. So it's very, very different. But they say it's an awesome piece of blasphemy to say that God has a Son. Now, Remember that, but then let's look on our outline. John the Apostle is writing in Second uh, John. Here's what he says. I want you to underline a few things. He says, this is the Antichrist. Underline, the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the... Whoever denies the... Does not have the Father. The one who confesses the... Has the Father also. So... Islam considers it blasphemy to say that God has a son. The Bible teaches that it is this Antichrist, or spirit of the Antichrist, that says that God does not have the son. So here, here, here's my point in saying this. The, that um, we, we wouldn't look at that and say, well, they're a little bit off on their theology. They are diametrically opposed in their core teachings, and their, their fundamental teachings. Does that make sense? So me saying that does not prove that the Quran is bad and the Bible is good. And just because I like one and maybe don't like the other, that doesn't mean that the one that I like is true. They could both be wrong. That's certainly a possibility. Another possibility, the one that I hold to, is that one would be right and the other one would be false. And so that's certainly a possibility. But there's, there's one thing that, that I had to come to the conclusion, and it's simply this, because they are diametric, diametrically opposed in their teaching, that they both couldn't be true because they're saying the exact opposite things at the core of their teachings. So if love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is right, then uh, murdering and crucifying, cutting off your enemies' hands and feet on opposite ends would be wrong. One of them has to be right. One of them has to be wrong. So, And if they were both right, then you'd have this very, very schizophrenic God who says, okay, now you kill everybody who doesn't agree, and now you guys over here, as you represent, you love everybody who kills me, you know, or who kills you. So you say, that, that's a little bit weird. Try that at home with your kids, you know. So you beat up your sister, love them, you know, that's what it is. It's, it's kind of weird. So here, here's what I want to say before we go any further. We love Muslims. We want people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But the reality is we do not serve the same God. They are not the same. And it doesn't matter what religious leader stands up and says, you know, it's really all the same God. That is a false teacher, a false prophet. He is deceiving. He is deceived and deceiving. And, uh, and uh, sadly, there are a number, not just one, who are now saying that. So my question is, what is truth and how can I know? I don't want to just be a Christian because I was born in America and went to a Baptist church growing up, wonderful heritage as that might be. And then you look at the, the statements that Jesus would make. For instance, there in your outline, Jesus makes a very bold statement. He says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That, that's either true or it's a lie. And if it's a lie, a lot of good people have died believing what he said was true. And so that wouldn't make him a good teacher. It'd make him you know, a, a terrible false teacher. So Jesus claims that there's only one way to God. So how do we know? Is it, is it blind faith? We just accept? Um, you know, is, and and how, how do you know? So for me, I had to come to the place, is there a way that we can know? Is there a test that the true God could give? 
and says, I'll, I'll give you this test. And, and, uh, and when this happens, you'll know, and only a true God could do that. No false God could pull that off. Well, there on your outline, you notice I, I have the, it says God's test and challenge. And God says, here's the test. God says, I am God and there is none like me. So uh, Allah, Buddha, whoever, none are like him. And he says, here's how. I make known the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, what is still to come. So God says, here's the test. I'll tell you from the beginning what's going to happen because I'm God and I'm the true God. It's going to happen. Just like I said, 100% accuracy. No other God who's ever come, gone, whatever, will ever be able to do that, will ever be able to do that. And, and so when I, when I got that and I, and, I, and I saw what I'm going to share with you, it, it literally changed my life. And it changed that it brought me to the place where I was casually in to where I was all in somewhat emphatically, you, you might say. So I want to deal today with one of the ways that that happens. And it's one aspect of prophecy. And then to wrap up and show you why it's so important. Have I put you to sleep yet? No. Okay, I'm trying. So... So in the Old Testament, you have the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, what you and I would call the Old Testament. You have the writings from a number of different writers, we would say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they're all writing about this coming Messiah, the coming Christ, and he would show. And they would all give certain details, certain details, and uh, very, very specific details. I'm going to give you about seven. The first one's a detail, but, it, but, um, but it's more explanation. So, and I'm, I won't I'll tell you when it was written, and you might want to make the note, but I, I might forget to tell you, so, so just make sure that you do. So for instance, all the way back in Isaiah, uh, 700 BC, you want to write down, it said that he would be God. And I want you to notice, here's how this goes, and, and uh, it says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor mighty, what does it say? God, and in case you miss it, the eternal, what? Father, Prince of Peace. All Christians believe that Jesus is God, that God came to the earth as a man, born as a child, fully God, fully man. We believe because that's what it says. All Christians believe that Jesus is God. Everyone else believes that Jesus is not God. And that's the dividing line between that which is Christian and that which is not. So um, that's the first thing, and uh, that's more for information's sake as to who we're talking about. But early in the 700s, and again, you want to write 700 uh, or so before Jesus was born, Micah the prophet told us that when he would be born, all those years in the future, he would have to be born in this tiny little town called Bethlehem. Notice there in your outline, it says, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, I probably butchered that, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me, God says, the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from of old, how old? Underline from everlasting. He will be born in Bethlehem, but he has existed from everlasting. What that means is that he, it was never created. There was never a time where he was created. He is eternally existent, we would say, uh, it, as believers. But he existed from everlasting, but he would be born as a man, as a child, in this tiny little town of Bethlehem. And you notice this of all the tiny little thousands of villages. In that day, Bethlehem was probably somewhere between three and five acres in size. 
uh, their concept of town and our concept of town are very different, about three to five acres. So of all those tiny little towns, he had to be born in Bethlehem. Well, uh, again, uh, 500 BC, the next one, he's going, it said that he would present himself as the king, but he would do it in a way that you don't typically present yourself as a king. Uh, riding on a donkey, we would say a baby donkey. It would say there in Zechariah, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and, and I've underlined, endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, not many kings will reveal themselves in such a humble way. He chose to reveal himself in a very humble way. Most kings reveal themselves as conquerors, but here it says he came endowed with salvation. His purpose was very, very different. And so it, it gave that, that, that little tidbit. Well, again, in, in Zechariah, again, 500 years B.C., it told us of his betrayal and that he would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. There in Zechariah 11, it says, there in your outline, it says, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out, and I want you to underline, 30 shekels of silver as my wages. That's what's going on, and then God speaks. It says, then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. The idea is that I came to them, and all I was really worth to them was 30 pieces of silver. That's all, that's all they really regarded me as. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and I threw them to the potter and the house of the Lord. We all know the story. Judah sells Jesus for 30 pieces. Ultimately, that goes to the potter's field. And, uh, and so we, we know that story. Now, well, that was written 500 years and that had to happen. A thousand years BC in the book of Psalms, uh, in Psalm 22. Now, when you read Psalm 22, you're going to find that there is this conversation going on. You have three people in the conversation. You'll find that it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When it's the Son speaking there in that, always from the position of being on the cross, looking down and describing what's going on around him. Again, this was written a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Notice what it says. It says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. It pierced my hands and feet. Underline that. I can count all my bones. You see, he's looking down. My enemies stare at me and gloat. Underline, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. So the picture here is of somebody who's on the cross and he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. The reason that's so interesting is if you ask the question, what was the, the form of execution in ancient Israel, 1000 BC. It was stoning. Crucifixion will not even be invented for 700 years, 700 years in the future. And then it says, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing as he's looking down. Again, written a thousand years before. Uh, the same chapter during the crucifixion, again, a thousand years before the crucifixion, before Jesus is even, even born. Same chapter, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And when you read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, that's what they're saying. And that's what he cries out. My God, my God. Again, a thousand years before Jesus was even born. 560 BC, 
in uh, the book of Daniel, it talks about when he would be crucified and it teaches that he had to be crucified before Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. There on your outline, I won't, I won't uh, unpack all of it, but we'll just, just the part that we need. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Underline that. The Hebrew word there for cut off is karat. It means to be executed. And some of your translations, when you read that, it'll say the Messiah will be killed. And that, that's what it means. And have nothing. And then the next event from God's perspective in world history, the people of the prince who is to come will, and I want you to underline, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The city is Jerusalem. The sanctuary is the temple. And its end will come with a flood. And they'll just flood out of there. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. So the Messiah had to be cut off before Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. That took place in 70 AD under the, general, the Roman general Titus Vespasian who came in and destroyed Jerusalem. They didn't intend to destroy the temple. One of the soldiers comes in, takes a torch and accidentally throws it into one of the windows of the temple temple catches on fire. And when it catches on fire, it heats it up so much that the gold around the temple melts. And the gold goes down literally between the rocks. They say, well, the temple's destroyed. Let's don't leave the gold. So they literally took all the rocks apart to get the gold out of that. That was in 70 AD. He had to be cut off, that whoever the Messiah was, before 70 AD. That makes sense so far? And uh, then finally, uh, one last thing, Isaiah said that, that uh, he had to be in a rich man's grave when he died. There in your outline, it says in Isaiah 53, it says, his grave was assigned with wicked men, but he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Typically, when you were crucified, they just discarded your body. And the reason they did that, that was just to add to the humiliation. But you know the story, there's a very wealthy, prominent man named Joseph of Arimathea, so prominent that he's able to go to the governor's house and say, I need to see you. The governor gives him an audience. He says, I want his body. And the governor agrees to that. You and I trying to get to the governor's house, it's probably not going to happen. But this guy was very rich and very, very powerful. And so he puts uh, Jesus in his grave. And you, you know that story. So I have focused in on a few details that had to take place. And uh, you can look at it and go, ah, we know, all right, so that's, that's, that's interesting. But um, all of these details were given hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. So, so let, me, let me tell you how this works. And uh, you might find this interesting. Let's say, we say, we're looking for a guy. All right, well, million, billions of guys have existed throughout the world. We say, but this guy, I'm gonna give you one detail. This guy had to be born in Denison, Texas. One detail. All right, well, how many guys were born in Denison, Texas? Well, I'm going to bet probably less than 100,000. Probably. It's not that big of a town. Maybe 100,000 people, 150,000 tops, but not that many. So, one detail. Look for a guy had to be born in Denison, Texas. Another detail. Born in Denison, Texas, 1961. You go, okay, well, that, that's a little bit more specific. Uh, probably only 100, if that many, Boys were born in Denison, Texas, 1961. It's two details. Born in Denison, Texas, 1961. One more detail. Grew up in North Miami, Florida. You go, all right, well, that narrows it down. How many boys do you think were born in Denison, Texas, 1961? Grew up in North Miami, Florida. Well, so add one more detail. Born in Denison, Texas, 1961. Grows up in North Miami, Florida. 
goes to seminary in Anderson, Indiana. Well, that narrows it down a little bit, wouldn't you think? So how, how many boys do you think were born in 1961, Denison, Texas, grew up in North Miami, and then go to seminary in, uh, in, in Anderson, Anderson, Indiana? Not that many. One more detail, specific detail. This boy was born in 1960, or Denison, Texas, 1961, grows up in North Miami, Florida, goes to seminary in Anderson, Indiana, marries a girl named Cheryl. Would you say that it's becoming very, very specific at this point? Only five details? All right, let's give another detail. Looking for a boy, born Denison, Texas, 1961, grows up in North Miami, Florida, goes to seminary in Anderson, Indiana, marries a girl named Cheryl, Together they have 12 kids. <laughs> Could it be anybody else? You were narrow- okay, we're going to one more detail, okay? So, looking for a guy. Born, Denison, Texas, 1961. Uh, raised in North Miami, Florida. Goes to seminary in Anderson University, Anderson, Indiana. Marries a girl named Cheryl. Together they have 12 kids. Pastors a church in Jupiter, Florida. I give you seven details of my life, and you have to conclude in the history of the world, no one has ever been able to accomplish that other than me. Now, if I were to give you an eighth detail, it would go something like this. Denison, Texas, 1961, North Miami, seminary, Cheryl, kids, church, and number eight, he's extremely good looking. Why is that so funny? <laughs> hey, nobody else is going to tell you, tell yourself. So, so God, says, God says, here's what's going to make me different than any other God, any other book, anything. I'll tell you from the beginning how it's going to happen. I gave you seven, seven details of Jesus' life that had to come true. God says, I'm not just going to give you seven. I mean, I give you seven of my life, and you say, in the history of the world, it can only be you. God says, I'm going to give you over 300 specific details, and he had to fulfill all of them 100%, and so that you would know that when he did that, I'm going to do what no other God can do. I will tell you the end from the beginning. Does that make sense? And when I saw that, the statistical probability every time you give one more detail, the statistical probability that it could be anyone else in the universe goes down, not just incrementally, but exponentially. Uh, some have said it's like if you took the, the state of Texas and you filled it three feet deep with uh, silver dollars and painted one of them red and, you know, the chance of you finding, you know, the jumping in and finding, I mean, it's statistical. I don't even understand that stuff, but you get the picture. It's, the idea is it's impossible for it to be anybody else. The Quran can't do that. No, no other religion, no other faith on the earth has been able to say, and that's why God says, I am God. I'm like no other, no other. And here's how I tell you from the beginning, how it's going to be at the very end. I saw that. And I came to the conclusion that only a true God who is outside of time and space, who can see the future, could actually put that together. And that's what took place. And I came to the place where I said, I'm in, not just because I grew up in a wonderful church in a wonderful country. I'm in because I've looked at the evidence and I realized there is no possibility that it could be any other way. Does that make sense? So if you're here today and you've never come to that place, 
I encourage you, one, to make the decision, rest in him, to make sure that you know, that you know, that you know, that your relationship is right with him. But also you need to know that he is true and in his, in, in his book, he teaches that there's only two spiritual kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness. Everyone else apart from Jesus is of the kingdom of darkness. And it doesn't matter what religious leader, what political leader, what philosopher. If Jesus is true, that's a lie. I would encourage you, place your bets with Jesus. If you've not invited Jesus Christ into your life, here's what he says. He's not willing that any should perish. He will never force himself upon you. He calls you to receive him. He's paid the price for you so that you can have a relationship with him, not based upon the good things that you've done or haven't done, but based upon the fact that he loves you and he's paid the price for you. And he created you because he wants to have that relationship with you. And he says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open up to him, he says, I'll come in. And he'll say, I'll dine with you. I'll fellowship. And the idea is that when he steps in, he never leaves. You are his. You're his. But you have to say, yes, I want that. As we close today in prayer, you have the opportunity to say yes to that. But just know that this yes is not based upon blind faith. It's, it's based upon something that's undeniable, statistically, you might say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this time up today, our prayer, first of all, for, for those, of us, those of us who are here, if we've not come to that place, right now today, we look to you in our own way and we say, Jesus, come into me. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of everything I've ever done, everything that's been a barrier between you and I, I want to be yours. I don't have it all figured out, but I want to begin this relationship. I want to be yours. And so today, as I invite you inside of me, I will now follow you as best that I know how. Father, our prayer is that for those who make that decision, as you step in, that you guard your own, that you protect your own, that your spirit leads into all truth. And that this begins an incredible relationship. Father, for those of us who are here, we believed you, but we've been listening to deceitful spirits. We've been deceived. Voices have been telling us that it's really all just one. And so today, for the first time, we've seen that that's the theme of the end times. And so we come back to you today and we say, we're following you. We don't want to be deceived. Our trust, our hope, our everything is in you. If you've given your life to Jesus today, after the service, there's going to be some prayer partners standing in front. They'd love to pray with you. Solidify that decision. Let us know uh, by marking that on your cards before you leave today. Father, I pray that you keep all of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.